Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, let's start our second hour of Interpreter Radio. We've just taken a very short break because no one in the radio business likes dead airtime. That's sort of uh, not a good thing. So here we are. We are back. This is the second hour of our show. It's Martin Tanner in studio with Terry Hutchison. He shared last Good hour. evening. <laughs> Thank you. He shared his, his book, which go get it on Amazon. It would be really, really worth your while. This section of our show, this portion of our show, will be about two of the last two books, almost at the end, Haggai and Zechariah. I want another year. <laughs> I want another year of Old Testament. I am with you on that. There are so many people who, who are not there, but I... I'm all I, over. I, I love the Old Testament. Yeah, if we yeah. could do two two years on the New Testament, it'd be fabulous. Let me do our short little intro and um, give our information about our sponsor. This interpreter radio show is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, whose mission it is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints through scholarship by encouraging personal study and faith by providing accurate and detailed information to the public and church members about the church. Interpreter Foundation also makes available free to everybody on the Internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects. Find them on interpreterfoundation.org. And the Interpreter Foundation also responds to misunderstandings about the church and defends the church against criticisms. The Interpreter Foundation is not owned by or affiliated with or controlled by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and therefore, for all the errors of which I commit on the air here, uh, the church is not responsible, and also the same for others. Yes, and all the errors Martin commits. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Not the rest of us. Not the rest of you. There you go. And so, as Terry mentioned last hour, and you know, I should do this more as, as I start these uh, programs, the interpreter is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit, and it runs by donations. And so, if you have interest in supporting the defense of the church and wonderful scholarship, go to interpreterfoundation.org, find the little donate button. And if you give 50 cents, $5, $500, $5,000, or anything in between, we will be forever grateful because this is a non-paid effort by people who just love the church well, and love yourself. scholarship. I mean, if I sell enough books, I'll be paid, right? No. <laughs> but not through no. interpreter. No, that will true. be on your uh, own Also, efforts. you yeah. should know 501c3 means it is tax deductible. That's right. Okay. And I would say 95 plus percent of your donation is used for what you donate it for. So very little overhead. 
very little overhead. It's, you know, there's a little bit to keep the technical stuff of the website itself going, but really none of the leaders, none of the board members, none of the participants, none of the co-hosts, certainly. Um, (laughs) Well, maybe Martin, because he's the senior. Oh, no, no. (laughs) But seriously, everybody is doing this because we believe in the work. We believe in the work of the Interpreter Foundation. We believe in supporting the church and its doctrines and teachings and doing whatever we can within our purview and within our talents and abilities to to do it over over 10 years of weekly articles with a backlog of months a backlog of months nobody submitted a thing to interpreter they'd be able to produce articles for the next several months yeah and i'm sure people will submit there are oh, some yeah. great things yeah there are some wonderful things uh this particular interpreter radio show is sponsored by LDSAgents.com, which is a network of over 3,000 friendly, top quality real estate agents serving Latter day Saints nationwide and in Canada for more than 20 years. If you are buying or selling a home, please consider using LDSAgents.com for your purchase or sale. You will be happy if you do. And remember, they speak your language. They understand your needs. LDSAgents.com. We're proud to have them as our sponsor. And now, the Old Testament books, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, (laughs) I'm so excited. Good. Well, <laughs> you want to start us off here, and well, I can supplement. Well, you know, we I remember reading the, the first time, well, the second time, because I read the whole standard works before my mission, but realistically, when I was about 13 or 14, I wasn't paying as much attention to the Old Testament as I would later. But I distinctly remember reading Zechariah as a young missionary, and all of a sudden, the prophecies of the Savior, you've got the 30 silver pieces, you've got riding into Jerusalem on an ass, you've got, um, you know, these are the wounds I got in the house of my friends. All of the things there were just amazing to me. So later in the last decade, when I've started really uh, spending a lot more time studying the prophets and the Old Testament and uh, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, looking for the temple in the Old Testament, um, I, I came to realize that most people group these two books together, but they do it in a, in a little bit of a different way. So they do Haggai and the first half of Zechariah together. In fact, I, I find that I've got on my shelves two or three different volumes, one from Anchor, one from the Old Testament Library's commentary series, where they combine them. I think the international, uh, well, anyway, just a couple of the others will do the same thing. They combine Haggai, they combine Zechariah 1 through 8. But Zechariah 9 through 14, they treat completely differently. And while it's a little bit of a simplification to say that they do that, Zechariah is different, completely different. And it was something I noticed um, as I was getting ready for today's lesson, particularly with regard to the first part of Zechariah. Notice that when he gets a prophecy or he sees something, he asks an angel for the interpretation about it. Now, this is something that uh, occurs in the Old Testament that we don't really talk about very often. And it's an area that happens in the Book of Mormon as well. 
and I'm fascinated by it, but I haven't, you know, because of the project that you mentioned earlier tonight and we talked about, I, I haven't been able to turn my attention to it as much as I would like. But there was a, a, a doctrinal thesis that I ran across several years ago called the interpreting angel, what they call the interpreting angel motif in the Old Testament. So for a period of time, when a prophet would see a vision, he would just describe the vision. Period. Okay, end of story. The, the, this, the prophet would just write, this is what I saw, this is what I did, whether, you know, I think Isaiah is a classic example of it, okay? But by the time we get to Zechariah, by the time we get to the second temple period, which is after the exile, so, you know, when we're talking about biblical studies, and this is something that we, that we found in the book, and when I've given talks about it in certain places, you know, to regular audiences of just, you know, lay people, if I use the term pre-exilic, they don't know what I'm talking about. But the exile occurred between when Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians about 587 B.C., and the second temple begins about 515 B.C., when Zerubbabel, built the second temple, and that temple lasted until it was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, we call that Herod's temple only because Herod expanded the temple site. He didn't really rebuild the temple, but he expanded the site from where it was. But that second temple period runs after that 70 years when the Jews didn't have a temple, okay? After that period, when a prophet receives a vision like Zechariah here, he gets he has to have it described to him okay by a holy being by an angel so here in in this one he'll talk about this he'll he'll say um the lord uh the angel who talked with me said proclaim thus saith the lord of hosts i am very jealous for jerusalem and if you know this is in the first chapter of zechariah so there will be other things when he'll see the uh, two olive pillars, and he'll say, what is this? The angel will then tell him what it is. Um, that's called the interpreting angel motif. We see it in the Book of Mormon. Notice, Lehi has the vision of the tree of life. Okay? When Lehi describes the tree of life to Nephi and his brothers, he says, this is what I saw. He doesn't have an interpreter. He doesn't. You know, when he sees the vision um, that sends him from Jerusalem, that sends his family into the wilderness, when he sees the Lord in the prophetic vision in the first chapter of First Nephi, he actually sees it. But when Nephi has the vision of what his father saw, he has the spirit of the Lord telling him, this is the condescent, you know, what is the meaning of the fruit? This is the condescension of the Lord. This is, he, he has that described to him. Later on in the Book of Mormon, Alma does the same thing. He says, the angel explained it to me this way. So it's, I'm not sure what that break was, why all of a sudden we have prophets beforehand just reporting directly what they see. And then later we have prophets reporting what they see as explained to them by the heavenly beings that are with them as they're seeing that. And this is a great example of that, because all through here, Zechariah is constantly turning to the angel to find out, the angel of the Lord, to find out what this means, what it stands for, what, you know, how to apply it. And um, that, that's one of the things that really struck me about 
this area as I've studied it. And I was really surprised to see that um, after Isaiah and Ezekiel, even ahead of Jeremiah, I have been more interested in Zechariah than I have not been able to attend to it as I desired, but I'm ready to now. (laughs) Anyway. Great, great couple of books. Uh, Short overview of Haggai for our our teachers out there so that you can maybe mention to your class at the beginning of your class what's in this book. By 520 B.C., many of the Jews had returned to Judah from their exile in Babylon. The leaders were doing okay, but many of the ordinary everyday Jews were really just struggling to survive. It was a very harsh and difficult time. And the Lord tells Haggai here at the beginning uh, that their struggle is because the temple has not been rebuilt. And he suggests to them that they need to respect the Lord and build the temple. And if they did so, they would be blessed. And that's the same kind of a theme that you see in the latter days. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other great church leaders have repeatedly told church members that as they attend the temple, and in the earlier days as the temple was built, that as they would uh, complete the temple— it would be a great, great blessing to those and to many others. And so very similar themes by Haggai here and the, the early church leaders and even current ones Well, if today. I remember right, Haggai, um, after, as he was preaching or about that time, they went and they reestablished the altar and they started the foundation of what Solomon's temple had been, but then they didn't do anything with it for about 20 years. Right. And uh, some of the, you know, some of these prophets were political leaders, and it's really hard to tell, um, you know, especially in the Persian era, it's really hard to tell uh, what is historical, what has been edited. For example, the Deuteronomistic history, we, we really struggled with that in the book that we talked about in the last hour, um, because the Deuteronomists hated the kings. And they didn't like the idea of a personal appearance of the Savior. And so it's natural that when they write in their histories, you have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Samuel. Notice how every king, with a couple of exceptions, eventually falls, no matter how good they are. David, Solomon, Saul. Um, you know, one of the kings goes in and performs the ordinances in the temple, and then he gets leprosy. Well, You know, Melchizedek was a king. The ideal is for you to be have kings and priests and for them to be the same. And David did that. And the Savior gave it the stamp of his approval when he, you know, when he gave that example of what David did by feeding his men the showbread in the temple. And the kings usually determined where the temple sites were instead of the high priests. And that... 
the the Deuteronomist couldn't keep it out of the history because it was actually that way. That's something that Margaret Barker emphasizes a lot. That's something Kevin Christensen emphasizes a lot. And that's something we found in our research that was really true by non-LDS scholars is that, you know, there's always a theme here. So so the political theme, if you will, of Zechariah and Haggai is it's almost as if there's a little bit of a damper, especially on Haggai as a prophet. I mean, the great thing about Zechariah is even though he's one of the political leaders, these visions he's got are just amazing. And there's an angel there, and then all of a sudden the angel whips out the measuring stick. And the last time we saw that was at the end of Ezekiel when the when the angel whipped out the measuring stick and started laying out the heavenly temple at the end. Um, you know, where, 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 um, Ezekiel is seeing the heavenly temple in the last days. So it's just some real powerful, uh, emphasis, but whenever we, we read and study this, it's always important to pierce whatever the agenda was of whoever put this together. We believe in the Bible as far as it is translated correctly, but even as far as it's been handed down to us, I mean, and we have, we just have to know that it's so old that we don't always have a pure manuscript or translation. We think we have quite a bit of the New Testament, and we have some problems with that. But when it comes to the old, yeah. it's way out there. And the the earliest significant manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament date to about 300 B.C. with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's not even that. It's not even that far when, back when, when, exactly. you, when you get right down to it. But it was a quantum leap when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Yeah, and, and you find uh, some things that are remarkably the same. People talk about the Great Isaiah Scroll amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls and how similar it is to current ones. But kind of depends on your point of view. There are some pretty significant changes, and and. Um, uh, it would be really interesting to somehow be able to do the time machine thing and go back to five or six or seven or eight hundred BC and see what scriptures. Well, what, like what then. did they have in writing? What came down orally? Yeah. How did that all come out? But I'll tell you, when it comes to Isaiah, Donald Perry is probably the leading scholar in the world. And I'm not just saying that because, oh, he goes to BYU. I mean, his latest work is very technical from Brill, and it is about the variance in the text of Isaiah. And he really is the scholar right now who has the best handle on the great scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if anybody can tell us about that, it's Donald Perry. Yeah. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are, how you feel about Brigham Young or Latter-day Saints or anything else. You have to acknowledge that that's Donald Perry is the guy. Yeah. Well, and if you believe in Latter-day Revelation, which we do, and if you believe that Joseph Smith's um, articles of faith were inspired, which we do, then that tells you that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And our, our current usage of the word translates a little more narrow. I, I would say that that pretty much means we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it has been uh, translated, transmit, transmitted, and not reworked yeah. <laughs> to us. I mean, it, there, there are obviously some major changes. You know, the when we think about the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, though, 
after the exile. They were established in Babylon. And Jeremiah in particular had said, hey, listen, you guys are going to be here a while. Spread out, settle down. Your children are going to grow up. They're going to get married. Um, you know, all, all of that, that that was taking place. So when they came time to come back under Haggai, under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, you know, Zechariah, all at that time, not very many came back. I think the first group was only about 5,000. And in fact, the city of Jerusalem itself maybe hit a population, and I think John Gee was telling us this, maybe 10,000 about that time. And so this this bit with Haggai at the first, it kind of sounded a little like President Nelson. So when you go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, and I, you know, you and I both have various translations kicking around here so the listener can read it, but um, he's essentially saying that uh, the word came through Haggai the prophet, beginning in verse 3, that was part of the end of verse 3, now verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your well-roofed houses while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Now, these are the words of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a sign right here, by the way, the Lord of hosts, that the Deuteronomists, they're not in charge of this thing, okay? Because they hated that term. Because the reason was, once again, the Lord of hosts, the hosts of heaven are the angels. And um, we actually talk about this a little bit in our book in, in, about one of the feasts, how they did away with the angels. They did away with the fire and the lightning and thunder. And in fact, at parts, they changed the, day, the weekly reading of the scriptures in the synagogues because they didn't, like, they, they didn't like what that reminded people of. They reminded them of some of the earlier beliefs. It's a kind of a theme of Margaret Barker that she's more aggressive than, say, I would be. But it, there is an element of, of truth in what she's saying. But he says, consider your way of life. You have sown much but reaped little. You eat but never enough to satisfy you drink, but never enough to cheer you. You are clothed, but never warm. And he who earns wages puts them into a purse with a hole in it. And I've been there. In fact, I'm there now. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the Nephites. These are the words of the Lord of hosts. Consider your way of life. Go up into the hill country, fetch timber, build the house. Consider your way of life. President Nelson has said that recently. Consider your way of life. Make fundamental changes in our way of life. What, what are some of the things you think he's referring to there? I think, well, sacrament meeting today uh, in my ward, it's a fifth Sunday. They always do something special. And the focus was on what the first presidency wants us to do is a major shift the members aren't there to support the church. The shift should be the church is there to support the members in their gospel efforts at home. Now, that's not that, that doesn't mean there's going to be some incredible new change or, or, or something, but the emphasis is different. And, and that's the same thing that's going on with Haggai here. You've, you've got the emphasis shifting with the people according to the commandment of the prophet Haggai. He's saying, hey, I know you're destitute. I know you're there in some really difficult times. This, this is very much like 
the building of the Kirtland Temple and the, yeah, the Temple in yeah. Nauvoo. The people are starving. They're still building the temple because they that, know that they'll be That was the blessed. amazing thing that we found is just, you know, and in St. George as well. They're eating dandelions if they're lucky, yep. and yet they're building they're the temple. They're building the temple. And that's what Haggai is telling, you know, Haggai, Haggai, tomato, tomato, I, however you want to say it. He He is telling the people here, Focus not on yourselves. Focus on the temple and building the temple. And here, you know, this is from the contemporary English version. uh, Chapter 2, verse 7. I will shake the nations and their treasures will be brought here. Then the brightness of my glory will fill this temple. All silver and gold belong to me. And I promise that this new temple will be more glorious than the first one. That is an idea that when the people heard it, they must have thought, that's crazy. Solomon's well, I would have said three. that. Not yes. only that, but they didn't have the ark. They and did. they never did. That Yes, and I, you know, last hour I liked your comment. I also believe, you know... Sorry, Indiana Jones, you're not going to find the Ark somewhere. The <laughs> I still I love that, though. Bab- it's in a government warehouse somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that's still the best ending. The Babylonians, I, they got rid of it. And, and that's kind of what Jeremiah says, but that's a story for yeah. a different day. So um, I wanted to dovetail on one other comment that you made that I think is is less understood than many people often get, and that is the influence that was made by Babylon and Egypt and the other places where the Israelites were scattered between, you know, the scattering and when they came back. Just a simple illustration of that. When you look at all of the New Testament manuscripts, virtually all of them are in Greek. Why would that be? That's because the whole world spoke Greek. Yeah. The whole world spoke Greek. And by this time, the Old Testament that was being read amongst the Jews was the Septuagint. Uh, But that's not what the Catholics wound up with. No, but that's because Jerome changed everything in 400 AD. They they went with the Vulgate one. Well, yeah, and Mm -hmm. and that's Latin. But... The point I'm making here is that when they come back, all of their children speak Greek probably better than they speak Hebrew. They speak both, but they're immersed in Greek society, Greek literature, Greek language, and the Jews do not want to lose their religion and its impact on their youth. So they make a compromise. They have a Bible and Old Testament in Greek, and that's what was predominant at the time of Jesus. That's how monumental this impact was that you were talking about, the influence of Babylon and, and oh, yeah. why everybody yeah. stayed, and that's huge. Well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because one of the things, in fact, if you read the work of uh, C.T.R. Hayward, there's a book called um, The Name of Israel. Um, 
I'll, I'll have to find it. I'm sorry. I'm having a brain cramp, which is unusual. But um, essentially, he, he talks about the interpretation of the name of Israel um, in various situations and scenarios. So first of all, he talks about it in the Hebrew texts and the ancient manuscripts, the Masoretic text, as we call it. Then he goes to the same passages in the Septuagint, the Greek. They are different. Yes. The translators have agendas, and so you have to kind of sort through those. Yes. And then you have it in Jubilees, which is another thing where they add another layer on to make them more faithful, particularly the patriarchs, right. to the law of Moses. And we, we kind of talk about that a little bit in, in the book that, you, that we wrote. You see this all the time in the New Testament. They say, and as the prophet said, and you go trying to find it in the Old Testament, and it's not there. And yeah. why is it not there? Well, because... You know, the stuff that's come down to us through, you know, as you trace back the King James and through the Vulgate and things, and you, you eventually get to Jerome's new translations of the Bible, you don't get to the Septuagint. And if you went to the Septuagint, you'd find a lot of those. But you if you might find to, a few of them, But yeah. if you get to Jerome's, you, you don't. Mm-hmm. And um, in, anyway. But you were, you were talking about Babylon, you know, and we, we wrote about that a little bit in our last chapter, where we, it's called the, the temple loss, okay, the, the results of the loss of the temple. Those taken to Babylon found themselves living in the most advanced civilization of the ancient world. The Jews were not the only foreign people in Babylon, a great metropolitan area surpassing all other cities in the Orient and the Middle East. But the Jews seemed to have a kind of relative freedom there. I mean, once they were taken there, Babylonians didn't care. So they retained their separate identity as a people, even when they were exposed to foreign gods of a pagan religion. They participated in the Babylonian economic and political life while continuing to resist the influence of outside religions. Those in exile were cut off from being able to worship at the temple even before its destruction. See, so some of them were were taken before. I mean, the... The destruction of Jerusalem occurred in stages, and I think a lot of people may not realize that. But those in exile, um, it forced a reconsideration of how to access Yahweh in a foreign land. And a belief in the mobility of Yahweh arose during this period. So um, that's, you know, this is kind of one of the results of the loss of the temple is all of a sudden the foundation of what was taught and what was thought about God kind of was taken away. But there had been a movement of centralization. So initially, and we, we talk a little about this in the book, but it's a, it's a major area of biblical study in and of itself, is people could worship God in a lot of different places, and then eventually it was centralized to the temple, okay? And then when the temple was destroyed, then they did something else. But um, the Babylonian Jews emphasized the preservation of the ancient traditions. And so the Jews prioritized beliefs in the scriptures and other rituals. And they longed to practice temple rituals, but the temple was destroyed and the practices they adopted fell short of what had been in place before their relocation. So that's when they started to, to do that. But they they always kept together and they tried to emphasize that. And while it was a positive thing to avoid, you know, all of these pagan influences, all of these outside influences on their people and their culture, especially their young people, I think there was almost an overreaction to the point where it affected their ability to understand the mission of Jesus 
because they were so focused on the worship of the one God, they forgot kind of that second God, that son of God, if you will. And that's one of the main themes of Margaret's work is that. And, you know, that's where the temple in particular kept pointing to the Messiah, the blood that, that the, the whole point of the law of Moses was to lead people to the Messiah. The Nephites had a pure understanding of the law of Moses. That's why they recognized Jesus Christ. I mean, if I could see a word in the gold plates that Joseph Smith translated, it would be, what word was he looking at when he translated it to Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm not, I'm not bothered by any of the other, and I'm not bothered by this either, but if I could see one word... That would be the word because, mm-hmm. because they had a pure understanding of it. And those that did not were kind of like the Deuteronomists. And a good example of that in the Book of Mormon is the priests of Noah. They had lost the understanding of the Messiah. They had lost the understanding of Revelation. They kept the law only in and of itself. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament with Jesus and the Pharisees. And so that's kind of what was going on here. But a very small sliver of the Jews wanted to leave Babylon. After 70 years there, they were established. They were getting wealthy. They were participating in the trade. And they felt that they were protected. It's no, it's no um, surprise that one of the two places where the Talmud was crafted about, you know, about 1,000 years later, Babylon was one of them. Right. Yeah, pe- people tend to think of uh, Babylon as being this horrible kingdom that conquered all these other places, and it was. But once you once you got, got there, to Babylon, <laughs> you, you were pretty much left yeah. alone as as long as you didn't cause insurrections. Yeah. And in some it's like ways, Las Vegas, <laughs> maybe Washington D.C. No, yeah, I didn't something. say that. You didn't and hear it, me say that. That's uh, yeah, we did, but that's okay. It, and it's also a little bit like the Roman Empire. People tend to think of the Romans as being. So harsh, evil, and and awful. And they conquered a lot of different countries, but they pretty much allowed people to believe whatever they wanted to as long as they acknowledged the emperor supreme. And for most, that wasn't a problem. But when you got to the Jews and early Christians, that was a problem. Yeah. And they paid for it with their lives. They They did. But other than that, which was pretty huge... If it were not for that, if they would have said, oh, yeah, the emperor's the highest, that, that they would have been okay and they would have been treated well. But yeah. I digress. All right, so other thoughts that you would like to make well, about from Haggai, Haggai before we from move Haggai, to— Haggai, we go to Zechariah, and right. Zechariah is messianic in the extreme. I mean, you know, as I was talking about earlier, when I read it as a young missionary, I mean, there's just some passages there that you, you just can't ignore— but right out of the first chapter, I mean, I've got the uh, I've got the the Jewish translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation right here, and um, in verse eight, I wish I'd brought my glasses. <laughs> in chapter one, in the night I had a vision. I saw a man mounted on a bay horse standing among the myrtles in the deep, and the myrtles are the uh, between the mountains. Okay. So in the Septuagint, that's mountains. But for some reason, we we get this word myrtles. Just don't worry about that. And behind him were bay, sorrel, and white horses. I asked, what are those, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered, I will let you know what they are. Then the man who was standing among the myrtles or the mountains spoke up and said, these were sent out by the Lord to roam the earth. 
and uh, they've roamed the earth and found all the earth dwelling in tranquility. Well, once again, they're roaming the earth. They're going to and fro. Now, that's a phrase that stands out in my mind from Job. Remember? Yep. Uh, it, the Lord comes across Satan, the he's Satan, if you will. To he's roaming to and fro on the earth. Yes. Yep. Now, he's fu- not finding everything obviously happy and peaceful, but he says, well, look at my servant Job. What do you think about him? And then they start that whole drama. But also, the angels are sent back and forth in the book of Revelations. And Jesus talks about how the angels are sorting in the last days. So, you know, you get this tie-in right here, immediately going to the last days. This isn't even the first days. This is the last days. And that's when later, you know, in a, in a chapter soon, well, as I said, we get the, we get the heavenly messenger who's, who's, got the, who's got the measuring tape. Um, verse 16, Assuredly, thus saith the Lord, I graciously return to Jerusalem. My house shall be built in her, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line is being applied to Jerusalem. He says in chapter 2, I looked up and I saw four horns. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are those? Those, he replied, are the horns that tossed Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four smiths. What are they coming to do? He replied, those are the horns that tossed Judah so that no man could raise his head, and these men have come to throw them into a panic, to hew down the horns of the nations that raise a horn against the house of land of Judah to toss it. So in other words, oh, and then here we are. I looked up, and I saw a man holding a measuring line. Where are you going, I asked, <laughs> to measure Jerusalem, he replied, to see how long and wide it is to be. But the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. Run to that young man and tell him. I mean, you know, you just get these angels and all of a sudden you've got this stuff. And this is like, wow. This is, this is tremendous. And uh, when, when you look at it, um, one, of the, one of the resources that's available to people that, you know, if they wanted to get some, some money and, and find a resource for interesting use on the New Testament, it's called a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's by uh, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson. They're the editors. It's put out by uh, Baker Press. And uh, essentially, there's a second edition to it. And it's just everywhere there's an illusion or everywhere there's a usage in the New Testament of the Old Testament. And it just breaks it down book by book in the New Testament. And uh, so, you know, for this purpose, you can go look up all the references to Zechariah and then move it around and see, see who uses it the most. And no surprise, Revelations. Revelations, and then a couple of the Gospels, because obviously you have those later prophecies specifically about the Savior, about the betrayal, about the entry into Jerusalem. And I I just can't get enough of this little book, you know, and the chapters are short, too. It's great. One of the ones that I I wanted to bring up here was not long after the Dead Sea Scrolls were published, there was this big controversy. There there was... um, uh, Eisenman and, and, and Wise, these two professors who had this Dead Sea Scrolls text, and mm-hmm. you know I should have pulled it out, but but they called it the it's Pierce okay, Messiah it. Scroll, and they the Pierce Messiah text, and and there was debate back and forth and back and forth about whether this was real or not, and um, Biblical Archaeology Review has all these scholars that 
think it's been sort of debunked at this point in time. Uh, but I have often thought that, number one, it was not debunked and the arguments against it are really not all that valid. But second of all, I thought, why would that be so earth-shattering if something like that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls anyway? Why is this such a threat? If you go to Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, it says, and this is the contemporary English version translation again, verse 10, quote, I, the Lord, will make the descendants of David and the people of Jerusalem feel deep sorrow and pray when they see the one they pierced with a spear. They will mourn and weep for him as parents weep over the death of their only child or their firstborn. On that day, the people of Jerusalem will mourn as much as everyone did for Hadad Ramon on the flatlands near Megiddo. Now, that's a pretty clear reference to piercing with the spear and then people later being sorrowful about it. And this is a reference to a descendant of David. Uh, This, I mean... (laughs) I don't know why the why the Dead Sea Scrolls was such a controversy. It's right here in Zechariah. It's right here in the Old which, Testament. Which verse have you got there? Uh, this is verse ten, uh, okay. chapter twelve, verse ten. But I and this is the Jewish Publication Society, right? Obviously, oh, a little oh, different. Yeah, they're not going to like. <laughs> but this. I will fill yeah. the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem with a spirit of pity and compassion, and they shall lament to me about those who are slain, wailing over them as over a favorite son and showing bitter grief as over a firstborn. Yep. See, Nothing s- about that. Slain's a little bit different than pierced with, yeah. a, with a spear. Now, um, here we go. In the footnote, in the side margin, yeah. verse 10, an alternative and more common translation which is at home in Christological interpretation, gosh, Martin, that sounds like your middle name, is represented by, and I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now that's from the New Verizon Standard. The Hebrew is ambiguous because it may refer to a person or group whom they have pierced. Although the identity of the pierced one or ones is unclear if the text is read as the continuation of verse 9 as the structure of the section set by the in that day opening suggests. It more likely points to an individual or group from within the nations for an understanding of the verse is pointing to the Messiah from the house of Joseph. See uh, the Suko, um, and I'm not even sure what that is. Yeah. And Radak reads differently. For him it describes such a salvation that if even one person of Israel were killed in the battle, they will be astonished. Yeah. So See, this is yeah, this, this, this is, is similar, what we're dealing with here. This is similar to to the virgin young woman controversy. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and to me, that one and this one have always mm-hmm. been a tempest in a teapot because if somebody's slain with a sword, they are. Well, here's here's the Revised Pierce. English Bible. 
okay, that, okay. that we've got, very similar to what you've got there. But I will pour a spirit of pity and compassion on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and will lament over him as over yeah. an only child, and will grieve for him bitterly as for a firstborn yeah. son. Con- and, context tells you everything. Yeah. Th- this is clearly mourning, not for a whole bunch of people who are dead, but for some one who who has died and and the young woman virgin thing is a little bit it doesn't work so much in our context today because so many young women aren't virgins and so it's not the same it one means the other i mean hopefully in the church they mean the same thing but back then you would not be a young Jewish girl, a young woman who was not also a virgin. And so they literally mean the same thing. And I, I also believe that for this passage, this in Zechariah, they, the context shows this to be about an individual, not some big group in, in a battle. Yeah, and it really, you know, but like you said, even though it's a tempest in a teapot, it's an important one. Because, yes. because this is a very specific reference that those of us who believe in Christ use from the New Testament. And so I've got my Jewish publication society right here, and they admit the more common translation is at home with the Christological interpretation. We're going to do something different. Okay, fine. That's good that they can do that. And when I get my commentaries, if it's a Jewish author, they're going to go with this. If it's a Christian author, they're going to go with that. And that's what I love about Zechariah is he is unafraid. The scripture is what it is. And um, I, you know, in, in, I can hear John's voice in my head right now, John Gee, that is. If we were on the second week, he would be saying, that's why you learned the Hebrew yourself, Terry. <laughs> well, he, <laughs> but I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Well, here, here's another one. And this is even a King James change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark ten eighteen. In Matthew nineteen seventeen, they come to Jesus and they say, good sir, and they're going to ask him a question. And instead of answering the question, he launches off into this, why callest thou me good? And if you read it in the, in the King James, it says, none is good save God. But if you go back to the, Deuteronomist. if you go back to the 1611 King James from the context, and if you go back to Tyndale, it says, why callest me good? No man is good save one, and that's God. And that got all revised out because nobody wants to call God a man. And that that is a pretty big nuanced change. You can say, oh, it means exactly the same thing. None's good but God, or no man is good but one, and that's God. Well, maybe that doesn't mean much of a difference to some people, but it sure does to Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was talking about this Old Testament, New Testament usage. Well, here's, here's the passage in John 19 and 37. Uh, the present passage provides the second of two texts said to be fulfilled by the Romans' actions in 9 and 34, namely Zechariah 12 and 10. They will look on the one they have pierced. The text is yes. quoted in Revelations 1 and 7. An earlier text in Zechariah 9 and 9 is quoted in John 12 and 15 with reference to Jesus' kingship. Now, one of the things that we found in there is that something that happened 
between the destruction of Herod's temple and when the Old Testament appeared, if you will, by Jerome, and even before the destruction of Herod's temple, the manuscripts were being changed by the rabbis. The minute Jesus appeared on the scenes and people started following him, and they started quoting certain Old Testament scriptures about him, they stopped using them in their regular worship services. Now, they couldn't do it entirely because, obviously, it was just in Jerusalem and they didn't have modern communication. It wasn't like now you can just you know tweet 2,000 miles and somebody can can, can you know, make the change. So it was still done in many areas, particularly in, in the example that we used and we cited in our book in particular was the Feast of Weeks. There were changes. There's an article by Rachel Elior about that. And it's, I don't know, 30, 40 pages. And it is fascinating about why they made those changes. They made the changes of, in the feast. They made the changes in the readings. They did things specifically because the Feast of Weeks actually is 50 days after the Passover. What happened in the New Testament 50 days after the death and resurrection? Martin, what happened 50 days there? It's called Pentecost. Right, where the Spirit was poured out That's and right. everything. That's right, exactly. Yeah. The minute that happened and they started making those claims, they went to work and changed all of that. And so that's kind of what we have here. So, um, you know, the, the Ze- Zechariah 12, 9 and 10 is part of a second oracle spanning 12 verse 1 through fourteen twenty one, which concludes the book. And it focuses by way of divine speech on Yahweh's action against the nations. Now, 12, 1 and 8 determines external events to occur in Jerusalem in that day, which essentially is the last days. Right. But Yahweh is going to pour out a spirit of grace, like he says in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26, in supplication, which is connected to people looking on one whom they have pierced. An individual has been killed, a possible instance of a prophetic perfect, and this is followed by a period of profound mourning. In context, the phrase on me can refer only to Yahweh himself. Right. And that's yeah. a future prophecy. It's not yeah. about some contemporary war or something mm-hmm. yeah or a contemporary person and then this goes on to say it's page 504 of this of this commentary which is some really fascinating material about it but there's there's so many other things here i i love the part about the uh, the 30 shekels of silver in verse 11 <laughs> then i said to them if you are satisfied pay me my wages if not don't so they weighed out my wages 30 shekels of silver the noble sum that I was worth in their estimation. The Lord said to me, deposit it in the treasury. And I took the three shekels and deposited it in the treasury in the house of the Lord. And I think, if I remember right, that weren't deposited in the treasury in some of the other translations. They were deposited in the potter's field, if I remember. Yes. So, you know, once again, we've got the issue of translation here where you don't know, well, okay, you've got one side saying this, you've got another side saying that. Where does it really lie? But the fact remains, you have the 30 shekels of silver being paid for the life of the Lord, of God himself. Because this is the voice of God here. This isn't just, you know, some random person or anything else. I mean, he specifically says, I said to them, if you're satisfied, pay me my wages. Chapter 13, verse um, 
Six has another similar one that, that is different in modern translations than it is from Jewish ones, and even different in some modern-day English asked, translations. What are those sores on your back? He will reply from being beaten in the homes of my friends. Yes, and if one of them asks, why are you wounded? He will answer, it happened in the house of my friends. Yeah. That's a pretty big translation difference. So here, they say it's presumably for making drunken scenes, okay? <laughs> and, and so they, they try and explain this as sores being sometimes symptoms of hysteria. But they also say this is possibly a reference to ecstatic prophecy. That's how they yeah. kind of describe it, is that it was almost self-inflicted because he was just in this... Uh, state. See, there, there are two ways you can look at this. Number one is that the Jewish Christians or Christian Jews, however you want to look at first century Christians, those who followed Jesus during his lifetime and then were there when he died and was resurrected, re- resurrected they saw themselves as Jews and Jesus as a reformer of Judaism. And as they read their scriptures, which was entirely at the time the Old Testament, they saw Jesus in them. And that's why you see these New Testament references back to these verses. If it was so crazy and so different, they never would have seen him in them in the first place. Well, and once again, like, like I was reporting, they took it out. They went and intentionally took it out. And people say, oh, it was the, so maybe the Catholic Church took it out. No, no. It was taken out before then because there was this understanding that the Christians were now using it to support Jesus. And that was not going to fly with the power, political powers who were the ones who executed him <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, things change w- yeah. when— um, yeah. Twitter was Twitter was locked up on that time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. When when Jesus uh, when this whole Jesus thing happened in the first century, two of the most popular names to name your young male child were Jesus and Judas. After this little Christian thing came along, nobody was naming their kids Jesus. And nobody was naming their kid Judas. Well, how many Pontius Pilots do you know these days <laughs> that's, either? That's right. The, Although, the context the, there's some changed. last names. I had a coach who was named Pontius back wow. in the day. That was his last name, not his first. But that's, even so, that's I mean, I think he was kind of stuck with it. Yeah. The point being that the context changes the desirability of names and words and verses. And after... New Testament Christianity had begun. The Old Testament was dramatically reworked. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, the earliest fairly complete Jewish Old Testament dated to about 1000 A.D. That gives you a lot of time to rework it. Yeah. So at the end of Zechariah, the Lord is basically saying, okay, I'm going to clean everything up. I'm going to take care of Egypt and everything. And then you have these verses on in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 14 the last two on that day holy to the lord will be inscribed on the horses bells and the pots in the house of the lord will be like the sacred bowls before the altar in other words they'll be they'll be filled with cleansing blood which means the savior will have worked his atonement yeah. every pot in jerusalem and judah will be holy to the lord of hosts 
and all who come to sacrifice will use them for boiling the flesh of the sacrifice. When that time comes, no longer will any traitor be seen in the house of the Lord of hosts. In other words, you're not going to have to buy your animals. The sacrifice has been made. Jesus has finished his work and is putting it up to his father. So the question that the that they ask us to do is say, well, the, how, does, how does this holiness unto the Lord? The Lord makes us holy through his atonement. So then you ask yourself the question, well, how do we do this? How do we make ourselves holy in the name of the Lord through the atonement? And that's really what we should be focusing on. Because, you know, all of these rituals in the temple, all of these things, especially before Jesus came in the time of the Old Testament were done, only the high priest could do it on behalf of the people, as symbolically, of course, with the Savior. And when they changed the nature of his office, which happened after the temple was destroyed, in fact, after the first temple, in many translations, he was no longer referred to as the high priest of the temple. He was referred to as the head priest of the temple. We've got that in the book, too. But I would just say, it, you know, it's something that we need to um, remember and figure out. And that's where the Book of Mormon comes in for me, especially, because the Book of Mormon, particularly the teachings of Alma and Amulek, tell us how to exercise that atonement, what it is, what it means. And we really can understand this Law of Moses stuff and this ancient temple stuff in light of that, particularly through uh, Amulek's sermon in Alma chapter 34. A couple of things that um, I wanted to mention really, really quickly before we're done here. Uh, chapter 14 talks about the Battle of Armageddon briefly. And you also occasionally hear people say, well, water's going to come out from under the temple. Where's the Old Testament prophecy about that? It's in Zechariah chapter 14 in, in verse 8. So th- there you go for those who are teaching this lesson. We are... Out of time for this session of Interpreter Radio. Terry, tell people the name of your book. Oh, again, yeah, where once they again, can find The it. Temple please, Pathway please. to Heaven. Yes. Uh, you can look it up under my name or Grant Gifford's name in uh, Amazon. Paperback's available now. Uh, Kindle, hopefully, soon. Cool. Fabulous job. Oh, and I'll probably do an audio book for it, too. Fabulous. Thank, thank you, Terry. Thank you all for listening. Join us again for Interpreter Radio next week. Terry Hutchison and Martin Tanner signing off.